The opening 10 verses of Judges chapter 2 provide us with a little summary of all that's taken place so far as we considered in the introduction last week. To get the most out of this book, it really helps to understand how it came to be that Israel would need this quite long series of judges who God would raise up to save and restore them. And whilst there's plenty of geography and politics for those who like such things, it's the spiritual battles that are taking place which are of real interest to us and which make this book so compelling and so relevant. We might not share their geography, we might not share their politics, but when it comes to their spiritual battles, we discover that in so many ways we are kindred spirits with them. And overarching all of that is God, who reveals himself to be righteous and just and the punisher of sin, and yet at the same time is long-suffering, slow to anger, and who abounds in loving kindness and mercy and grace. I'd encourage you to have your Bible open in Judges chapter 2, and I want to break that section down into three parts. And we'll look first of all from verse 7 through to verse 13. And we notice there spiritual collapse within one generation. If I were to drive into Liverpool from the northeast, past Aintree Racecourse, through Warbreck Moor and Walton, along Rice Lane, the County Road down towards Scotland Road. I would pass three locations which I used to visit fairly frequently in my childhood and my teenage years. Locations where there used to be a thriving church. One was a Methodist church, one a Baptist church, and the other a United Reformed church. All were Bible-teaching, evangelical churches, and all had a thriving boys' brigade company, and that was my link to them. They were all in the same North Liverpool group of companies as my own within the Liverpool battalion of the boys' brigade. Those were the days when every BB company in Liverpool would descend upon the Anglican Cathedral once a year for our annual church parade and some 2,000 boys and men would be present. It was quite a stirring sight and sound in those days. But those three churches that I'm thinking of, they no longer exist. In the case of two, the buildings are gone and housing has replaced them. The other is a health centre. And it's not that they relocated somewhere like we did six years ago and the church is still going. No, those churches, those fellowships of believers are gone. To my parents' generation, 
Each of those churches was well known, was long established, and was a well-attended place of Christian worship and gospel witness. My own children, my parents' grandchildren, have never heard of them. And they wouldn't know that they ever existed, apart from the health centre, perhaps, which is so very obviously a former church building. And of course, many of you could do the same kind of thing down any of the main arteries that lead into Liverpool city centre. And you could repeat that same process in every city across the country. You can do it as you drive through countless towns and villages in Wales, if you're ever there on holiday. Entire churches, whole congregations, gone, and often within a single generation. And that's exactly what's happened in verse 10 of chapter 2 of Judges. We read in verse 7, and then in verse 10, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, so those who were of his generation, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work he had done for Israel. There can be many reasons why a local church ceases to exist. But let's learn what we can from, from the circumstances recorded for us in Judges chapter 2 regarding Israel in those days. A generation arose, we read, that did not know the Lord. Now, their problem was not the fact that they didn't know history. The problem was the fact that they didn't know their God. They knew of him, but they didn't know him. They had no care for him. They had no thought of him. They had no time for him. Presumably they got to the stage where they thought they had no need of him. And they had long abandoned the worship of him. The problem was that the distinctiveness of God's people, Israel, had begun to be eroded. The worship of Baal, which was so prominent amongst the pagan nations of Canaan, was the worship of a fertility god. Now, unlike the one true God of Israel, Baal, who was considered to be masculine, had a feminine counterpart named Ashtoreth. And their whole religion was based upon the precept that in the heavens, Baal and Ashtoreth, these male and female deities, were uh, engaged in this relationship uh, which involved physical intimacy, just as it does for a husband and wife. If you read Dale Ralph Davis's book, 
you'll discover that he's rather more candid and straight talking than that in his book, uh, but with children present. We'll leave it at that and you get my drift. The worship of these two gods had one goal in mind, to encourage them in their own heavenly relationship and productivity. Because if things were going well for the gods, all would be well down here. And so in our families, we'll all have lots of children and the land which we farm and the livestock that we raise will all likewise be fruitful and multiply. That's how you would think as a worshipper of these gods. And as part of this so-called worship, men would unashamedly engage in sexual immorality with temple prostitutes. It was believed that by doing so, Baal and Ashtoreth would somehow be encouraged. Great immorality, great depravity of mind to embrace this kind of religion, to have thought up this kind of religion. And of course, Israel's God and the worship of him was completely unlike anything that these pagans had ever heard of before. And God, of course, had established Israel to be his own special, distinct people. And all of the laws that he gave them were different and distinctive from all of these pagan nations, and intentionally so. They were to stand out in this world of wickedness and unrighteousness and idolatry. They were to show people what God is truly like. I said last week that uh, in Israel killing and driving out these Canaan tribes, it was a punishment for the sins of those peoples. But it, it also meant that in driving them out, Israel would not be rubbing shoulders with them. They wouldn't be living alongside them. These people would not be able to be a bad influence upon them. But their failure to drive them out meant that even though perhaps militarily, even socially, they were the dominant force and the dominant people in Canaan, they'd left themselves exposed spiritually. These people were still there with their worship of their false gods. And Israel were leaving the door open to temptations of every sort. And we see this gradual swing take place. Later on, of course, in the chapter, we read that as this pattern of uh, falling back into sin develops, they did so quickly. Uh, probably to begin with, it was very gradual, but in future times, having been rescued and restored by one judge, they would very quickly fall back into sin again. How does it happen? Well, the more they take their eyes off the true and living God, 
the more they open themselves up to all of the wickedness that's going on all around them. The less they care about God, the less they worry about dabbling with this idolatry. And the more they dabble with the idolatry, the less they care about God. And very soon, they're miles away from where they should be spiritually. In churches today, all kinds of things can produce a spiritual decline. And we see it happening even in our own day as churches dabble with things in the world. So, for example, they, they can tolerate a lack of biblical obedience and a holiness of life. The next thing, they're, they're refusing to condemn sinfulness. Then they're abandoning long-held principles of biblical interpretation and changing their doctrine so that they can adopt, accommodate sinful lifestyles. In the middle of all this, the message of the gospel is watered down so as to be less offensive and more palatable to the sinner. And people who are not born again, because they so obviously have not repented of and left behind their sinful life, well, they are welcomed and treated as if they are believers. And in the midst of all that, the generation that's growing up in a church like that, in many ways, they, we might say they don't stand a chance spiritually. And we end up with churches who simply do not have the stomach nor the spiritual wherewithal to maintain the kind of biblical distinctiveness that Christians and Christian churches ought to have. And in a different setting and in a different place and in a different time, that in many ways was the problem with Israel. And their main issue was these pagan religions. That was their downfall. For us today, it's a mixture of accommodating all the recent societal changes in things like marriage and sexuality and gender, along with things like embracing theistic evolution and being ready to change our views on really important foundational passages of Scripture. Praying for and teaching and being an example to the next generation so that when I'm gone, they are firmly holding the baton of the faith. If Judges chapter 2 doesn't do anything else for you this morning, let it show you just how crucial that is. As we look around our own fellowship and we see the children, we see the teenagers, we see the young adults, the 20s, the 30s, the 40s. It depends how old you are as to how many decades you want to include in the list. But do you not see the urgency of this? Do you not feel the weight of this responsibility? This next generation 
They need deep roots and a firm foundation. They need substantial teaching, not fluff and froth. They need to be absolutely convinced in the truths of historic and biblical Christianity. They need firm, clear, steady examples to follow. They need to be converted. They need the life and light and grace of Christ within them. Within one generation, a church can disappear, the candlestick removed. Will you, before God, be faithful in what you can do to ensure that when the current elders of this church are forever with the Lord, the next generation will, by God's grace and in His will, still be a distinctive beacon for the gospel in this dark world and faithful and obedient with it. And will you be that for him today? What does Paul exhort the Romans in Romans 12? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Well, next in our chapter, we'll move to verses 14 to 18. Because one of the things that we also see here, which is so important, is the unchanging nature of God. When his people sin and turn against him, God is filled with displeasure towards them to the extent that his anger is hot against them. They've been warned numerous times that if they sin, God will chastise them. He will trouble and distress them. They need to know that what they've done is not okay, and he longs for them to return to the place where they should be spiritually. And I just want to mention something which is actually a huge and Uh, It's not an easy to understand topic, but it's important to bear this in mind. It's something that we call the impassibility of God. Does God feel for us? Is God an emotional being? Well, of course, in some ways, the answer to that is a most definite yes, but not in the way that we experience and understand those things. God knows and is love and compassion and mercy and grace, and he is angry over sin. But these things in God are settled and fixed attributes. God is not raging and ever-changing his emotions in the way that we can do that. 
his anger which burns hot against Israel is not God losing his temper with them. It isn't God's blood boiling. It's his fixed position towards them if and when they disobey him and rebel against him. It's because of that that God can make these kinds of promises that he does. If you do that, this is how I must respond towards you because this is the God that I am. Now, God is certainly, for example, never anxious, never in pain. One of the reasons that he had to come into the world in the form of a man was so that as a man in a man's body and with a man's nature, he could suffer and die. Because in his eternal state, he could never know or experience such things. You'll sometimes hear it said that God does not have passions like we do. And we mean God, God doesn't have changes of mood like we do. He isn't now happy, then sad, then perplexed, now confused, then this, now that. He doesn't have passions like that. He doesn't he isn't this one moment and something else the next. He isn't happy and smiling one minute and grumpy the next. All of the, all of the attributes of God, everything about God's nature is fixed and constant and consistent and unchanging. He's completely and perfectly stable, if you like, all the time. So when, for example, in our text, it says that God was moved by their groaning, this again is part of, part of God's nature to respond to the plight of his people like that. His anger against Israel is intimately connected to the fact that they are also the object of his love. And because of his love, he is moved by their groaning and has determined to send them judges to save them, even though his anger is hot against them. So it's not that God's mood or emotions are constantly shifting all the time. No, God is not like that. He's not an up-and-down, mood-swinging God. This is an eternal, infinite God on a constantly perfect, even keel, if we can use that phrase. And all according to his fixed and perfect and unchanging nature. And in perfect response to his perfect promises. This is God being God. Constant in his love and compassion. Constant in his anger over sin. Constant in his pity towards his suffering people, constant in his grace and his mercy to save. If you think about it, it's this unchanging nature of God which actually makes the gospel possible. God's anger against sin is constant and consistent. 
but never has he, never will he relent from his saving grace or his mercy, because they too are constant and persistent. Because he's not a God of changing passions like we are. He continues to make his grace abound towards us. We who are his elect ones. And he continues to save and fulfill all of his promises because he never changes. We so often are floundering all over the place. But never God. Hence the writer to the Hebrews can say, that those whom God loves, he chastens, just as he does the people of Israel. The unchanging nature of God. I'm so very thankful that God is the God that he is. That I wake up every morning and he's the same yesterday today forever his mercies are new every morning because his mercy towards me is the same day after day after day and this is why we read of him abounding in in patience and long suffering and loving kindness because he just goes on and on and on like that because that is who he is. It reveals wonderful things about the nature of our glorious God in this chapter. And we'll continue to do so as we make our way through the book. Well, thirdly and finally, from verse 19 and on into those opening few verses in chapter 3, we see that God is faithful to the unfaithful. It fills us with hope and assurance. Israel are going to go through several centuries of spiritual wavering, spiritual decline, sin, unfaithfulness, then to be rescued and restored only to decline once more. God now will not permit any more of these pagan nations to be driven out of Canaan. He hasn't just decided that. He's not a God of changing passions. That's always been his decided will and purpose. And he's going to use these pagan nations as an instrument of discipline. And his intent is that Israel should repent and return to him. God remains unbelievably faithful in the face of crass unfaithfulness and unrighteousness. God demonstrates that he is indeed slow to anger and abounding in mercy and grace. And at the same time, requiring obedience and righteousness and faithfulness in his people. We also see in Israel the power of sin to hold us captive. 
we see how again and again they fall into sinfulness and how easily they do it. Now, no doubt amongst this people, there are those who are true believers struggling through the whole situation. But certainly there are also others who have never had the faith of Abraham in their hearts and they never will. And because of that, they're forever doomed in their sins. And we see that we cannot and we must not permit ourselves ever to become complacent in giving ourselves to continuing sanctification because falling back into sinfulness is all too easy. And you must remember that only in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, by his word and by his spirit, only by that may you engage in the spiritual warfare that you're in as a Christian believer and to keep on putting off the old things and to keep on putting on the new. In Christ you may. In Christ you must. In Christ you will. In him you already have the victory. For in him you have died to sin. In him you have newness of life. We see here in Judges chapter 2 a clear application to our own hearts this morning. Do you truly know and love the Lord your God because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's at the heart of it, isn't it? Everything else I'm about to say depends upon that and is based upon that. Do you know and love God? If you do, will you determine to keep yourself distinct and faithful and obedient? Will we do that as his church? Will we all heed the warning that within a single generation, a church can be no more? Will you pray? Pray for your generation. Pray for the generation that's following after you. Pray that the baton of the faith will be securely and faithfully passed on. Will you do all that you can to keep yourself from the temptations of this sinful world and from the spiritual decline which has engulfed so many churches today? Will you respond in repentance and renewed faith and zeal should the Lord ever need to chastise you? Will you make all of these things a matter of prayer continually? Will you not see again the assurance that you have because of the wonder and the majesty of the person and the being and the nature of God. God whose anger burns hot against sin, yet is slow to anger and abounds in mercy, whose love extends even to sending his own Son that he could die in our place to secure our redemption. 
such love, such grace, such salvation, such a Savior. A God who remains faithful and true because he never changes. Surely in our hearts, the words of that famous hymn should always be singing. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. Only thou art holy. There is none beside thee perfect in power in love, in purity. O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all, reign supreme, conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased me. Make me yours forevermore. Help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace. Keep my heart, guard my soul from the evils that I face. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. O oh, great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me.